Hello everyone and welcome to the Track and Field Performance Podcast, a platform dedicated to providing expert insights from coaches and practitioners who work in the sport of track and field. I'm your host, Colin Burke. I'm a long jumper from Sligo, Ireland, who currently works in the field of higher education as a career coach, as well as being a volunteer assistant on the University of Louisiana Monroe's track and field team. I hope that this podcast serves as a useful resource for you and your athletes, enabling them to improve track and field performance. Now, without further ado, let's get started with today's episode and bring forth our guest. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. I'm here with my guest today, Coach Bob Turnhofer, who is the head coach at Loyola University in Chicago. Um, Bob, I have to say, with regards to where we're at right now, it feels quite surreal that I'm <laughs> sitting, albeit virtually, across from you yeah. uh, hosting this call because we we go quite a, a while back now, I think back mm-hmm. to 2017 when originally we connected. I was an injured athlete looking to embark upon the NCAA journey. And um, you're one of the people that I went to for advice, not only to yeah. become an athlete at Loyola, which didn't yeah. come to fruition for reasons on both our ends but sure. to put it uh short i hadn't jumped far enough and you hadn't the money but <laughs> what stood out to me at that time was you took away from your busy schedule as a head coach of a pretty big program to give me fundamental answers that i needed at a time mm. where mentally i was pretty defeated and my body was okay. injured and mm. at the end of that year i ended up making a massive breakthrough which enabled me to become recruited in the NCAA and I really do um, hold you as someone who uh, enabled me to do that by having myself question my technical changes that I needed Mm. to implement in order to make that jump sure so being here today having you as the first guest on a podcast seems surreal but also it's just a continuation of uh, where we were three years ago just two curious people discussing uh methodologies and, and concepts that enable uh, better performance on the track. So mm. I'll just have the listeners um, have a, get an introduction from yourself, get them familiar on who you are and what you do. Yeah, yeah, Colm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And you know, I had a blast uh, chatting with you those years back. And we've continued it to this day every now and then. I know we'll we'll chat every, every now and then through Instagram. And that was always, uh, I just love talking about long jump and sprint training and so like I could talk all day about this so you know having an opportunity uh to be the first person on your podcast is pretty uh uh that's that's quite an honor it's definitely all uphill from here my friend so you got to start at the bottom with me and then gradually work your way up to Dan Path and Boo and all those guys so <laughs> yeah but yeah I know it's uh yeah it's uh yeah so I'm the head coach at Loyola University Chicago um I've been uh, gosh, in January, it'll actually be 11 years that I've, I've been at the university. Um, but I've been a head coach now. This is my fifth year as the head coach. So I sort of, I started as the graduate assistant, sort of like I was equal to the janitor. You know, I didn't really do a whole lot. I basically was like cleaning up the gym, rolling out track, pretty much taking notes for, for the other coaches. Uh, not really doing a, didn't have a whole lot of responsibility, but you know, over time that, that really blossomed, um, into a part-time position and then a full-time assistant position and then eventually the head coach. So I like the joke that I'm like the stain you can't remove. 
Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of embedded in the fabric of Loyola athletics and I love it, man. I love working with the kids. I really like the university because it is a, a higher academic institution. So I feel like the, the culture of the school really fits, uh, what I like, like to work with in, in terms of student athletes. And, and it's a blast, man. I love the kids we have on the team, really talented group right now and really excited about the future as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I was lucky enough to actually pay an official visit and meet you in person yeah. just last yep. October whilst yep. I was visiting a friend who had transferred from ULM. Iran. Listen to this podcast. Great guy, <laughs> Iran, one, a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. But I could definitely tell the atmosphere around there um, does, you know, enhance people's performance. It's yep. like-minded people who want to get results, whether it be in academics or, yep. you know, in sports respectively. It's, it's an environment that I was very impressed by, although a bit cold for my liking. But nevertheless, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, I get used to Louisiana heat down here. I bet. But it's funny you mentioned about being a janitor at, at Loyola. It, it almost triggered the picture I seen of Coach Spo of the Miami Heat, who was yeah. a tape recording guy uh, many years yeah. ago, and look at him now. So I think yeah. there's humble beginnings for every mastermind that's behind a, a big program, <laughs> and they didn't start um, at the top. We know that yeah. to be true. So we want to talk about the role of resistance training yep. in acceleration development. And you recently released an article talking about the role of assisted training, specifically yep. for horizontal jumpers. Sure. But to yeah. just kind of open up the topic, I guess, tell me a little bit about your philosophy or the fundamentals behind acceleration development for sprinters and jumpers. And then we'll kind of bleed into more where the role of resistance training fits in all of this. But yeah, perhaps start there, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. In terms of like, say, a philosophy of acceleration, I don't think I have anything uh, like I kind of, I I would say like I've drawn from a lot of those big name coaches that have come well before me and and are far more established. So I came up through the USTF CCCA kind of coaching education platform. And so a lot of my ideas are influenced by Boo and and Todd Lane and all those guys that are part of that program. Um, And then I've, you know, I've, I've, I'm a pretty avid reader. I like to stay on top of all like the latest trends in terms of speed training and jump training and, and just speed power development as a whole. So, you know, I've, I've drawn a lot from Vince Anderson, uh, Dan Path, all the people at, at Altus, uh, Chidi Enya is a really close friend of mine. So, you know, I've learned a lot from him, just talking to him. I've known him for, gosh, probably almost 20 years now. Um, and Stu McMillan is definitely like a lot of the stuff he has out there has been very influential. And, and some of the stuff that Jonas from uh, Speedworks has come out with, sure. I, I, uh, I, I hopped on his uh, acceleration development, um, I guess, webinar back in, mm-hmm. I think it was in May, I want to say. And that yeah. was really good. Yeah, I thought that I thought you did a great job. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think you'll see a lot of that influence um, in terms of, you know, I, we can go through like technical parameters, but overall, like, I think one, one thing I do want to say from the outset that I don't see things in a very binary way. I don't see, I try to avoid absolutes, although I'll probably self, uh, self-defeat some of the things I'll say uh, by saying that, but I don't see like black and white. I see things in a very gray format on a continuum a bandwidth, if you will. Yes. yes. Uh, and so I don't really, I don't like have a technical model for acceleration 
or really any event, I kind of have a bandwidth of technique for every event, if that makes sense. Yes. And then I kind of, sometimes I work certain, like for acceleration, for example, I think you can, there's like a bandwidth between on the, on the one end of pushing as hard as you possibly can, which I think is a great place to start in terms of acceleration development. But then there's another side of it that has to do with frequency and turnover um, and so you, I think you're always kind of working both ends and you're constantly analyzing the technique of each individual. And sometimes you have to go far on the pushing end and other times you actually do. And I actually, I, I had a long conversation with uh, Jake Cohen from University of Illinois. He's uh, uh, kind of a new buddy of mine. Um, and we were talking about the epidemic of over pushing that I think and that, and that, because there's so much emphasis on pushing, especially in America, and I think for good reason. I think that's probably the most most common form of mis- or error in acceleration is probably frequency and turnover, mm-hmm. spinning the wheels. Uh, but there's a sense in which you can kind of go too far the other way and over push. Sure. And I have some athletes on my team that do that, mm-hmm. and I've seen that quite frequently as well. And so you actually have to rein that in and kind of work the frequency element. So, um, so I see that, like, I think generally speaking, like philosophically speaking, when it comes to acceleration, uh, resisted sprint training, uh, really anything with training, weight room, speed training, everything, technical development. I always, I don't see things in a black and white. I don't have like a neat technical model that I work from. I kind of have a, a bandwidth of everything and I'm always, I'm always juggling it and making sure it doesn't go too far one way or the other throughout the season and for each individual athlete. Um, and so I think that's really key. So uh, I kind of, I think gen- like overall philosophically, like I, I actually went to grad school for philosophy. And so that's, that was how I started at Loyola. And there's, I took a seminar on Aristotle and his ethics and metaphysics. And he has, uh, I don't know if you ever read any Aristotle column, but uh, if you if you ever read Nick, the Nicomachean ethics, uh, his virtue ethics, which I like a lot more than like moral absolutism or divine command theory. Like I'm not really, I don't subscribe to that. I, I really, I'm, I'm not a big Aristotelian, but I do like some of his thought. And he talks about developing good habits and virtues as a golden mean between the extremes of excess and deficiency. And so that's very much how I see kind of everything with training is it's like a constellation, if you will, rather than a very clear black and white format or technical model. So, so that's kind of like the overarching philosophy, but like within the parameters of acceleration development, I think some really key things that you're always watching is first, I, I think there has to be aggression and that's something uh, like I gathered that from Vince Anderson, like an athlete has to learn how to push as hard as they possibly can. And that actually takes some time. Like, uh, I don't think I've ever had a kid come to me or an athlete come to me and they actually learned the magnitude of pushing that has to occur on the zero step in the first, in the first couple meters of acceleration. And so that, often that takes about a year or two to really sink in. Um, I, I, that light bulb clicked for uh, one of the guys on the team this fall, uh, Diego. He, uh, we had talked about pushing, and I kept getting on him. I'm like, you're almost there, but you're not there yet. 
and we had to use the tape lines to get him to project his hips more. And, and I knew like, cause when it clicks for an athlete, what happens is like, they'll do a 30 meter sprint, for example, and they'll be pretty gassed. Like there, that's not a, a third, it sounds like a 30 meter run or a sprint, whatever, that doesn't sound like much, but if you truly express power maximally, like you're, you're probably winded from that single 30 meter sprint. And so I think that that notion of aggression, I think is, is really, is really key in the world of uh, acceleration development. And I kind of see that if there is a foundation, I would probably say that's the foundation. And then a close second would be uh, just making sure you're lining up shin and spine angles on each step. So when the foot strikes the ground, the shin should be relatively parallel to where the spine is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's obviously some wiggle room there, uh, but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be too much different. And so I kind of think it's like expressing maximal power in the right direction. Gotcha. And so I think those are if there is going to be a foundation, those are your keys. And then some other things are like hip projection is key. I think a rhythm and rise, I know that's a rhythm rise projection with Stu is a big thing yes. that I really yes. like. And, uh, and that's something I've, I've, I definitely have very much adopted that, that line of thinking. And I think rhythm and rise kind of go together, obviously projection too, but mm-hmm. there should be just a very gradual, subtle rise in posture throughout acceleration there should be no abrupt changes because if there is abrupt changes that that probably means the athlete abandoned pushing and started spinning the wheels too soon. Yes. Um, and so I think that that's a really key parameter that I'm always looking at. That was something I worked a lot on with uh, one of our, probably our fastest guy right now. It's pretty close between Tyler and Adam, but uh, with Adam, uh, he's, he's from Scotland. And that was something we worked on in our abbreviated year last year. He finally got it at the end of the year. And then we got, we kind of got shut down, but he's a beautiful accelerator through 15, 20 meters. And then you come kind of like mm-hmm. pop right up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we worked on being very patient uh, and, and just letting the body come up right naturally and not forcing anything. Yeah. Um, I've and seen so that I, at all. Even yeah, with my own like, training. Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you, you push too low, then you start spinning the wheels to compensate for the fact you think you're going to fall over and yeah. so on. And so there's a, there's an optimal, like, body angle for each individual where they're at in that time with requisite to the things that you're talking about there if you have the aggression uh where the foot is landing and everything mm-hmm. like that lined up correctly and once you kind of have that down it allows i i believe at least it allows for that transition to kind of take place naturally but you have to trust it to an extent because with acceleration it's like fighting a fine line it's like you want horizontal projection of course but not at the cost of the vertical emphasis that's yeah. going to come later in the run it's yeah. it's kind of like you're walking a tightrope there but yeah. yeah it's it's a it's and it's monitoring those day-to-day fluctuations those nuances yeah. that you you spoke about that you can't always operate in absolutes but rather the continuum is very important yeah. if you have adam show up one day and he's particularly spinning the wheels a little bit more than usual you might have him emphasize the push a little bit more a little bit more yeah. airtime yeah, and there's a, an array of factors that might be causing that, and yeah. so that's where your flexibility probably comes in. I'm guessing. Yeah, definitely, and so that's where, like, I think with with uh, individualization, um, you know, I think like we can always do 
I can have like on the sheet kind of the same session for everyone. So let's say just for example, we're doing uh, a re a complex, well, it doesn't even have to be a complex, but we're doing, I just have down on the sheet, 30 meters zone one, 1080 resisted sprints and 30 meter unresisted sprints. So that's on the sheet for everyone. Mm-hmm. Although it's not, I'm oversimplifying right now, but sure. But I can manipulate that session however I want for each individual very easily. Right. So, so for example, like I have a freshman on the team now that's a classic spin the wheels guy. And so I may, I may make 75% of his acceleration day resisted sprinting and only 25% of it unresisted because I can change those parameters. Cause I know he needs to learn how to push. If he doesn't learn that, then he's probably going to blow a hamstring. He's never going to get totally upright. And so, and he's only a freshman. So I think a lot of exposure to resist is really healthy for him. Um, and so I think that's, Whereas like maybe if, if Adam shows up or Tyler shows up uh, or Pap shows up and they're, they're having a, like, they're feeling good. Training is going well. I may only give them a dab of resisted and we may focus more on the unresisted uh, because ultimately with all, all training, whether it be technical or, you know, say resisted or speed bar, speed power or lifting or anything like that it has to transfer to, the event or something very specific to the event. And so I think as time goes on, I think early on, I tend to, re- in terms of purely on acceleration development, I think early in a career, uh, I tend to favor a little bit more on the resisted side. And then as time evolves and prog- and I see progression, I tend to detract from resisted and add more unresisted. Because ultimately, you got to be able to be fast unresisted. I mean, that's the that's the essence of it. Right. So, uh, so you don't want to get too comfortable in any mode of training. You're always trying to find ways to bridge the gap of becoming faster, uh, particularly for sprinters and jumpers. So, so yeah, you, I think like you can always have the same, you can, you could have the same workout for everyone, but you can manipulate what happens in those workouts very easily, uh, based on the data, based on how they're feeling, based on how they're looking, if I feel like uh, one of the athletes isn't pushing enough, whereas normally they do, but for maybe for whatever reason that day they're not, I may not have them do time sprints. I may have them just do tape excels, or maybe I just have them only do resisted sprinting. Uh, or if, if it's a day where we've gone pretty far in training um, and I feel like I want to uh, see where they're at, then I'll probably put the Brower timing gates up and have them do only unresisted. So, uh, so it's always like you can manipulate the, the same workout and apply it in all kinds of different ways based on the individual. So yeah, there's a lot of nuance there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely seems like there is, there's a lot of factors for consideration and I can kind of see the ladder in which you have in terms of specificity and how things would unfold in the ideal circumstances, but also with regards to the athlete that shows up with you in front of that day, whether underdeveloped, tired, fatigued, um, everything in between that would indicate that you need to taper it back or add in more of a certain element over another. With regards to resisted sprints training, talk to me a little bit about your setup at Loyola and essentially how that would 
kind of start within the winter program and ideally what kind of freedom that gives you to do resistance training to the extent that you would like or implement it the way you would like? Yeah. So with, uh, yeah, with the resisted sprint, uh, training program, uh, we use the 1080 sprint, uh, for all of it. I used to just be a classic sled guy for many years and that worked wonders. I mean, I definitely, uh, had no problem just using normal sleds. Uh, and I would kind of do something similar to what I do with the 1080, but the 1080 is just so much more effective because of the data and how closely you can monitor the data and the loading schemes. And so I just feel like you can do everything I've done with a 1080 with normal slides, no problem, but it just wouldn't have the depth to it is all. Um, and so, yeah, with the 1080, basically what I've done, and I put this in that first article for Simply Faster, was I use, uh, I've kind of broken up the, the loads of the 1080 from uh, into six zones. And these are rel- relatively arbitrary zones. Like I didn't, I didn't base those zones on any sort of data. It was just a, a way to purify and simplify my loading schemes for resistance sprint training. And so the 1080 sprint, because I'm assuming a lot of people aren't going to be familiar with it, but yeah. the resistance can go, it goes by one kilo and go from one. And then the heaviest it can go is 30 kilos. So you can go one kg, two kg, three kg, four, all the way up to 30. And, um, and so I broke those zones up into zones of five resistances. So zone one is one kg to five two is six to 10 and so on and so forth. And I, but I never use zone six. It's probably a little too heavy. Uh, I might, I might do it. Uh, I actually, I have done it with one person with, uh, uh, Chris Stroop, who is our, uh, I coached him several years ago and he's our hundred meter school record holder at 1039, but I actually still coach him to this day. And he's, uh, with team USA bobsled skeleton now. So I have gotten up to 30 kg with him. Uh, but I haven't with anybody that uh, is on the team or or was on the team in recent years. Um, but yeah, it was just a, it's just a way to, for me, it was just a way to really simplify and purify the resisted loads. Because uh, in, in early years of using the 1080, I used to, like, I used to try to figure out what the max resistant, uh, what their max of resistance sprint is. There's like formulas out there you can use. And then you, you can, and there's programs you can, or like algorithms you can use to figure out what the actual max is. Just like you figure out your hang clean max or your squat max, you can do that for resistance sprint training. And I thought that was good. It was reasonably effective. Uh, there's other, other models out there that, that go through kind of like a sort of like a pyramid scheme up and down, which I kind of use, but I've, I've altered it. Um, but I think, the point being, though, is that I felt like with resistance sprint training, I either had too much variety or not enough. And so I was trying to find that golden mean once again, right? Uh, as either excess or deficiency. And I wanted to find that middle ground and also wanted a very clean way of progressing uh, resistance yeah. sprint training as well. And I felt like that provided the the simplification into six zones really provided that for me. And so it's just like in, uh, if I use the USTF CCCA, uh, education, the coaching education curriculum, 
it would be like the the lifting zones that they use for say Olympic lifts for basic power development, rate of, rate of force development preparation, rate of force development, uh, ballistic lifting. All the, like there's kind of a hierarchy of of power development in in that coaching ed curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of loosely based it off that. I kind of loosely based it off uh, Brian Mann's velocity based training. Uh, categories as well they, they very loosely uh, but it was kind of a similar framework because if you're working zone one it's definitely more speed based with a little bit of resistance yes and then zone two is a little bit more resistance so you're kind of threading a fine line between speed and power in zone two uh, and then kind of zone three four and five that's just like to me pure power development yeah. I don't even necessarily think of it as speed development that's uh I don't know. I may have not made that clear in the first article. Uh, like I'm a subscriber to he- heavy resistance sprint training, yes. but not necessarily so much for speed development, mm-hmm. sort of for speed, sort of for speed development, but more so just, it's just raw power development. Like yeah. it's just, I see it almost like doing Olympic lifts. It's mm-hmm. just a simple, a very simple way of doing it since it's a 10 meter resistance sprint. Mm-hmm. And I, and I can use the data to, uh, to figure out how to make athletes more powerful. And, and it just makes, it makes power development more accessible to me in practice every day. Yeah. And so, so that it was, seems like you're categorizing the themes um, that, where the zones allow you to do that in the sense of it, it's easy for you to monitor what the zones accomplish, or at least yeah. within certain parameters, it allows you to know, and, and maybe you give the listeners at home a little bit more insight to each of the zones per body weight and things like that. And then it kind of goes back to also those zones will allow you to categorize the fundamentals that you were addressing earlier, as in, if you look at your, your heavier zones, four, five, six, you're seeing that there are heavy loads that will probably encourage more pushing for the athlete that is more frequency based and so on. And I think that will be very valuable to the listeners at home. If you were able to just give a little insight into each of those zones and then how you would ideally because we know we talked about nuance and we don't want to categorize because we know there's factors that will essentially affect an athlete on any given day and their own um, habits and everything like that but just in general speaking terms perhaps highlight some of that yeah yeah in terms of what the zones accomplish so uh so like uh this fall we worked mostly zone one we are only starting to dabble into the heavier zones uh, but like zone one is very light. And so it's only one kg to five kg. I mean, uh, this is very, very general terms, but think of like having five to 30 pounds on a, on a normal sled roughly ish. Uh, cause it, it depends on how you calculate, uh, what that resistance on a 1080 kind of transfers onto like what it equates to on a normal sled because of yes. things like friction and the 1080 is constantly adjusting to make sure the the, the resistance is always the same too. So it's just more effective in that way. Um, but yeah, like zone one to me is a very, like very, very much velocity based. And so it's very light resistance. And that's actually the zone we use the most by far. It's not even really close either. Like I know the article I've focused a lot on kind of zone four and five, uh, because I just wanted to demonstrate power development and I was more just trying to demonstrate a method of power development more than I was trying to advocate for heavy resistance sprint training. So it was more about like the, 
the the philosophy that was being used than it was the actual uh, instantiation of of the methods we were using. But uh, but mostly we use zone one actually is is by far the more dominant. And and basically what I'm looking at is the peak velocity that's being achieved within that light resisted sprint. And so the progression of it is, is really just extending the sprint. And so early in the year, we're doing zone one, 20 meter uh, resisted and probably doing unresisted twenties as well. And it, like, like we talked about, it just depends on where the athlete is at. Some athletes may do an isolated resisted sprint session isolated meaning they do only one thing uh and so they're only doing resisted or they're only doing unresisted or i might do a complex where it's they bounce they do a resisted unresisted resisted unresisted uh, and that's a little bit more advanced and then in some cases i do a segmented session where it's like we do all our resisted work followed by all unresisted work and so that's like a categorization that i implement based on the individual needs. And it's very easy to kind of like manipulate the session in that manner as well. So but yeah, we're looking at the peak velocity when we're doing zone one, because uh, it's not, it's less about power development there and more about the speed that's being achieved. And you might ask like, why are you looking at peak velocity? Why aren't you looking at something else? And, and there's two critical reasons for looking at peak velocity. And one is, is practical and pragmatic. It's just that on the 1080, that's immediately what comes up. And so when you're working with eight to 10 athletes, it just, if I wanted to look at, I could look at the average velocity for a five meter interval or a 10 meter interval. And that's, that's probably arguably more valuable. Um, maybe more so in the longer the sprint gets. Sure. Uh, but just for when I'm working with say eight athletes, that if, if one athlete does a 20 meter sprint, immediately when it's done, boom, peak velocity is right there. And so that helps me to make decisions on training from a practical standpoint. But actually, I think you could argue that peak velocity specifically in acceleration, specifically in late stage acceleration, is actually a critical factor to look at as well. Um, and this kind of goes back to something I, I learned from Jonas uh, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at final velocity – at the end of an acceleration sprint, I think there's a lot of value there because then you're, it's demonstrating what's going to happen later and how the nature or the shape of that acceleration uh, unfolded. Because uh, sometimes what you'll see is maybe peak velocity was hit at 15 meters instead of 20 meters if we're doing a 20-meter sprint when you want it to be happening at 20 meters and if I see that, then I'm probably going to lower the resistance for the athlete, provided they are executing reasonably good mechanics. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that's probably a, a factor too, is it? Well, yep. well, it's not just about the peak velocity. So what does that say about how they ran the actual rep yep. that in terms too. of yeah. the you know shapes they were hitting? If at yep. 15 meters, does that mean that they were perhaps turning over a little bit too much or falling over in the sense of you know long ground contacts or perhaps too long with respect to that individual of course and you're probably always building up a bank of knowledge and making very very quick and subtle reads on the spot that influence the the next decision for the next rep and i guess that's really just 
how good your foundational knowledge of what you're trying to achieve is mm-hmm. and the prerequisites going towards achieving it essentially because i know yeah you talked about jonas with the peak velocity and how that influences the rest of the race i'd have imagined that um you're trying to you know really look from the first step they take alongside the data to reinforce yeah. um the technical model to show that there's you know proof behind the pudding essentially yeah yeah you're always and that's one thing that uh you know i i hope comes through in this uh, talk is like, I feel like I'm always juggling all these like training parameters, right? All the time. We're juggling a technical model. We're juggling just raw, pure speed development, max effort. We're juggling resisted work. And so you never want one to become like, I've had athletes that became extremely fast, but they, they did it in a very sloppy manner. And that's a fault, you know, that that's going to cost them eventually. It may look sexy to see a really fast time, but if you abstract what they're doing over 60 meters or 100 meters, it's probably not going to be very effective. And, it provi- and it's putting them in a, a potential injury risk as well. So, uh, so I, d- I always feel like you have to watch the sprint. You have to make sure they're executing technically sound. But they all, there's the other side of that is athletes also got to sprint too. Like I think that's yeah. – yeah. like at some point you can't ex- – you can't you can't wait for an athlete to be technically perfect before they sprint just to move on. Sprinting will create such huge neural adaptations as well. And so I'm uh, like, once again, I'm on this, I remember the, I remember being or reading on the, the a Twitter argument between Tony Holler and Stu McMillan many years ago about like maximal sprinting and, su- and maybe slightly. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, part. yes. And it was, it's just this huge thing. And I felt like, they they couldn't really quite come to a common ground because I felt like they were coming some, from very different perspectives. Sure. And I, and I actually, like, I don't want to sound like a cop-out, but I, I agree with both. Uh, mm. And I think it's all about how you implement it. Yes. And I, I think there's a lot of value in submaximal work, and I use submaximal work all the time if the athlete needs more technical development. Mm-hmm. But sure. there's also a sense if you, if you don't sprint, you're not going to get faster, right? right? I mean, you have to sprint. Even if it is maybe a little reckless. And your number one is aggression, right? You said, you know, power expression. So you're not going to keep them away from that if that is your number one factor in how to push or create horizontal force in acceleration. If it's done soft and lackluster in terms of intent, then you're never really going to hit your number one goal or achieve what you, you hope to set out to achieve. Yep. And so I think you're always balancing like a sound technical model. You're watching rhythm rise projection. You're watching shin angles and posture. Uh, I've I found that like ankle, ankle stiffness, I think, is, is a thing I've been paying more attention to lately. Because sometimes I think when a kid pops up uh, very often, it's because they, their shin angle becomes too vertical very quickly. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes they stay on the ground too long. So I'm looking for, you know, shin angles to match spine. And although there needs to be some compliance with the ankle joints to create amortization, but I think there needs to be stiff ankles too to get a good angle when you're pushing. And so, so like you're balancing all these technical parameters. Yes. But at the end of the day, you're just looking for some proficiency in it. And then we got to sprint, man. And sometimes I'm willing to live with a little bit of sloppiness uh, just to get that, that extreme stimulus. Yes. And that resisted sprint training, like, 
that kind of forces it. I think there's a lot of ways in which a light resisted sprint. Uh, I'd say the, uh, the odds of an athlete hitting good mechanics are very high because the resistance sort of pulls it out of you sure. and it forces you to push a little more and, and it, especially at a light resistance. And so the odds of executing mechanically sound are a little higher on a resistance sprint than it is an unresisted sprint. And so, but yeah, overall, like philosophically speaking, I feel as a coach, you're always juggling these different things. These you're trying to enhance the technical model, but you do need to expose the athletes to speed and resist the training. Sure. And so you're always and you're always gauging that with each individual. So yeah. it's it's yeah, I think cycles obviously differentiate for what you're trying to accomplish as well. Right. So yeah. for example, as you go into the winter, I'm sure you're starting to go more towards the velocity end of things. Yeah. And yeah. ideally, of course, you want a sound proficient athlete to carry out certain, you know, tasks or plan A duties that you would yeah. hope. And there is a there's a process whereby I'm sure you're analyzing, you know, you'll probably tailor the sessions a little bit, but Ultimately, what I'm saying is if you play it safe right the way through with someone because you think they're not 100% proficient in a certain area, then you are kind of holding them back from achieving, as you say, that adaptation for that you've outlined for the group. And that might be optimally achieved by one athlete more than the other, depending on you know where they're at, training history, everything like that. But yep. you know, there, there is a means to the training, and that is to compete probably in an event where you're going to have to express a lot of output on you yes. know, the velocity and force end of things. And so if we're not getting towards that, are we even preparing them to race at all? Yeah. 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 And that, and that's the other thing, like along with juggling all these potential adaptations within training, you're also, I feel like I'm also thinking about where do I need athlete a or whatever to, to be two weeks from now or four weeks from now. And I'm thinking about how can I help them now to eventually get there? And so you're always, you know, you're juggling the present with how can I best prepare them for further adaptations down the road? And so, and so, yeah, like kind of getting back to those zones. So I'm like, I'll just, you know, I think it's easier for me to just talk in specifics. So like, for example, with a lot of my guys this fall, uh, we got shut down pretty early right before election because of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, yeah, I haven't seen those guys since November, what, second or third or something like that. Wow. Uh, so it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. So, but training really was progressing quite well up to that point. And, and the last session we did was that Monday before the election and we were doing zone one, 30 meter resisted. Uh, and then we're doing 35 meter unresisted sprints through the Brower timing gates. Okay. Um, and so that, like with that, basically we had reached a point with zone one and I'll, I'll kind of talk about how we use zone one. And so like we had reached a point where we we're closing in on hitting nine meters per second peak velocity on a 30 meter resisted sprint. And I was trying to get to that point at five kg. So the heaviest resistance of zone one. Right. And so basically I'm always, I'm kind of throttling the resistances on zone one, gradually working up in resistance little by little to try to tease out greater peak velocities at higher resistances. Um, so it's actually sort of the inverse of what I wrote in the article on the heavy resisted, uh, which I'll, I'll get to that. But so we're using zone one 
and the progression, we worked from 20 meters and then we gradually extended to 30 meters. And so we had worked 30 meters for a few weeks at this point and we were starting to see some really big breakthroughs. Uh, so we were hitting well over nine meters per second with uh, a lot of the guys at four kg. We, three kg was done a long time ago. And then four yeah. kg, we we're starting, I think four guys hit it uh, at four kg. And then we we're getting close at five kg. And so I was trying to get up to a point where I could get several guys to nine meters per second peak velocity at the end of a 30 meter sprint. And uh, uh, just at the end of the 30 meter sprint. And then the progression had, had we continued, uh, had we continued through the rest of the fall, I was going to try to work down to four, uh, four kg, three kg, and see if we could hit 10 meters per second. Ultimately at three kg, four might be a little too heavy. Uh, so basically you're doing like this sort of a pyramid type thing where you're working up the resistance, a little bit more force and power, and then converting it into greater velocity. Yeah. And that's generally how I think of the weight room, sprint training, jump training. You kind of, you start with kind of like speed and you quickly work from like speed and power up to and really work the force element and then gradually convert it back down to power and speed. And so gotcha. you're, you're manipulating sort of like force, power and speed at all times. But yes. as the ultimate progression is to work more speed. That's the yes. most specific thing, right? So yeah. you can become very powerful, very forceful, if you will. But ultimately, you got to be faster, right? That's the most yeah. important thing. So, yeah. so uh, I can so see yeah, there was, as well. With yeah, regards to your, you're always, I just look at the peak velocity and then also you timing the reps too. And yeah. having athletes are getting the feedback on obviously what you're trying to achieve there. And I'm sure that then again goes back to your fundamentals, reinforcing what you want the athlete to be able to do or the fundamental for acceleration development, the aggression aspect, the technical model. And it's just, it's very interesting to see someone who can kind of, enhance intensity but which obviously you just said it's all about sprinting fast at the end of the day and it's cool yeah. that you've kind of created a system whereby you're enhancing proficiency of course and the themes of the training are progressing accordingly to the individual athletes in the group and stuff but ultimately it's coming back to the focal point of why we're doing it in the first yeah, place right ultimately it's got to transfer right like we can we can come up with great lifting methods and great sprint training methods and power development methods but if it just stays that if it doesn't actually transfer to sprinting faster or jumping further or whatnot i mean who really cares you know that and that's why you're always you have to think about how you can bridge the gap between the event or components of the event. You know, a 30 meter sprint isn't the event, but it's a component of a 60 meter mm. sprint. Right. Um, and so it's very, very specific. Uh, but you have to find a way to get those heavy resisted sprint, those light resisted sprints or any sort of multi-jump activity to eventually bleed its way into a component of the event or the event. And so y'all, you have to keep an eye on transfer. Otherwise it's just fluff. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, just, it may look sexy. It may sound really cool. It may appeal to the, to, to the Twitter verse, but who really cares? Yes. If it doesn't, it doesn't, if it doesn't transfer, I don't care. And so it's never, it's never necessarily about the activities so much. It is about the methodology you're using and, mm -hmm. and finding ways to get it to transfer. Mm -hmm. And so I think like early on in the year, I'm always layering in 
I'm trying to layer in, layer in a good technical model. But by, by the end, like that day in November, that last practice we had, like I was timing, I was timing those 35s because we had actually timed those 35s uh, several times already. And I was trying to make sure I was seeing some transfer and transfer doesn't even necessarily have to be like with those 35s. It doesn't have to be that they're PRing every time. That's just Mm -hmm. not realistic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Like uh, every time uh, Adam or Tyler or Pap or Diego or any of those guys or Gift or or some of our girls, Lovey and Owen Lola and Danae, all of them, like every time they run or do a 35-meter sprint, you can't expect like transfer means they set a personal best. That's just not right. right. Transfer could be going good and they're still not setting a personal best. Yeah. And once again, it goes back to that idea of a bandwidth and consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really just looking at the performance clusters mm-hmm. and I'm looking at averages because I'm compiling data of these 35 meter sprints and I'm looking to see, are we getting rid of the extremes and making it more consistent? And, and that's definitely what was happening. Yeah. Like it's relative, of course. It's relative. Yeah. Yeah. And so like we're making, cause like last year, for example, like Adam's a, a really good, uh, kind of example here since he did a lot of that last year and this year and so he was pretty consistently a four three five through 35 meters I set the I set the Brower gates uh one meter ahead of their start line and then uh one meter past the 35 so really the timing gotcha. gates are at one meter and 36 meters gotcha and yeah I get that there uh, people will probably argue against that and whatnot but that's I've just always done it that way because I don't have a functioning thumb pad and so going back several years, I've always just put the timing gate one meter ahead. And right. so, um, so yeah, I, I get that that's going to be a lot faster than using a thumb pad, but right. that's just how we've always done it. But it monitors progression for you as a coach, yeah, and it's exactly. done consistently the same way. Yep. And so, therefore, it's not about what the number equates to, but rather what does it mean to that athlete in exactly. general. Exactly. And it's an easy way to track progression. And so, right. like, Adam was a pretty consistent, like, four, three, five. Uh, I think four three two is maybe his best. Occasionally four four zero, and then this year his his best was four eighteen, and that's the fastest I've ever had anyone go. Oh wow! Because uh, uh, Eric last year was four twenty three. Okay. And then, and uh, and Eric, I mean he he probably would have jumped close to eight meters had if we had the season right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and so I, I was pretty <laughs> I was pretty excited about where Adam was at, and and Tyler was four two one, and then. Uh, Diego and Pap were four two seven, four two eight. So we had like a litany of guys running four twos. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, I, I don't think the only only Eric ran a four two last year. He was the only mm-hmm. one. And I, the other guys were kind of four three five, four four, four three eight. And then, but even what I thought was even better, although Adam had a four eighteen, he pretty much made four two four like an everyday thing. He could four yeah. two, four two four, four two five, four two four, yeah. four two three. And it was just four twos every time. I mean, and as maybe, you said, the consistency is yes. is what you're looking for. It's not the one-off personal best that shows, yep. oh, you know, monster. Because we know that those breakthroughs often come with things lining up correctly. And un- as you definitely know as a coach, that's not the everyday no. uh, life of an athlete. Or no. there's fluctuations all the time. And so consistency yeah. tells you a lot about progression more so yep. than a one-off performance. Yep. And that's what I'm always preaching to, to the athletes about. It's just about showing up. Maybe this, this probably won't appeal to everyone that listens 
to, to this podcast, but it's all, it's really, you got to get the whole idea of a Disney movie. What you got to get rid of that whole idea of a magical moment and whatnot. It's just about being solid every day, mm-hmm. like about accumulating solid sessions every day, being consistent, being consistent, being consistent. And that in and of itself will breed such great performance. You don't mm-hmm. have to put up magical numbers on the Brower or the 1080 every single day. It's just about like w- eliminating a very low baseline, you know, the very low bottom, uh, like it, you're always just wanting to bridge the gap between the extremes and be really very consistent day in, day out. And so, and so, yeah, I thought that like, uh, in terms of that methodology with zone one, um, and that was sort of, I uh, I felt like that was somewhat of a progression from previous years, but that whole idea of like working zone one a lot and sort of looking at peak velocity or final velocity of a resisted sprint, because that shows where they're headed had they had the sprint been longer, right? Um, and and kind of working the resistances up and then coming back down, I thought was a great way to sort of you get that resisted effect and you build that up over the fall and then you start to peel it back. And then you're always using, I, I mean, I use time 35s uh, because that's as, as far as I can sprint indoors. I don't have a track. Uh, yeah. We don't have a track at Loyola. I mean, you saw it, but, um, and so when we're indoors, that's about as far as I can go. And so, so it's a, and it, it is a, it is a point where you are kind of like working, just barely working out of acceleration into max velocity too. So I think there is a lot of value there. So Mm -hmm. the other side of it is, you know, once again, going back to that whole like bandwidth idea and juggling training adaptations is I was working a lot of, um, uh, time 35s, uh, with the athletes because I was just starting to implement heavy resisted sprint training. And although I, I do like heavy resistance sprint training for the pure power development of it, I don't know if it transfers a whole lot to pure speed because peak power in, a, in an acceleration sprint, an unresisted acceleration sprint, I mean, that happens very early in a sprint. It's like the third step or something like that. I mean, it happens right away almost. So, so like a really heavy resisted 10-meter sprint only has a, maybe some transfer to pure sprinting. But once again, I wasn't really using it for that reason. It was just a means to pure power development. But the danger, once again, you're always uh, analyzing like benefits and possible hindrances with any training uh, modality, right? And so the danger with doing heavy resisted is it could cause overpushing, right? So so by virtue of working heavy resisted kind of later in the fall as I started to do just those last couple weeks – I wanted to be sure I was definitely timing 30 or 35 meter excels to hopefully like balance out the idea yeah. of a- know <laughs> that you weren't losing the essence of the entire goal at hand, which was, you know, obviously heavy loads. Let's emphasize the push element and then and the power output that you're looking for without diminishing returns from that baseline not the not the personal best but the consistency that you're looking for within the athlete so that we're we're knowing that it's doing its job from not just a technical standpoint but also ultimately performance because that's what we're we're looking for yeah because and and that's something i i think there's a lot of thinking in the in the sprint world of 
there's like flaws to timing acceleration sprints because if you execute a good acceleration sprint, you might not necessarily run faster, right? Because you've pushed really hard and you're setting yourself up for max V. And I do agree with that. I do largely agree with that. But I don't want my athlete to be in last at 30, right? I don't want to mm-hmm. – I think – so, I, once again, I think there's a balance there. And so, yeah. so I think – like I would like – Although I don't think I need a sprinter to be in the lead at 30 meters because that means they're probably spinning their wheels too much and sure. distributing energy properly. Yes. I also want them to be very much in the race too. Yes, like I don't yes. want them – they're five meters behind because they pushed really well. Well, that kind of sucks. Like that, I don't think that's going to work very well yeah. in the long run. So yeah. So I think that, that – I do think – I actually think there's – I think you argue it's a lot of benefit to timing accelerations quite often. And so that's something I've kind of evolved on my thinking. And, uh, and you're always balancing that with making sure the technical model is sound too. Yeah. They're not just spinning the wheels, popping upright and trying to get the max V in 10 meters. Obviously yeah. you don't want that. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, in particular though, like I, I want to pay very close attention when I do implement those heavy resistance sprints, uh, as like sort of an absolute strength type of lift, high rate of force development type of, of lift. Because I see it as a lift. I don't really see it as a speed sure. training activity. Yeah. Um, but there is that danger where you can fall into over pushing. And yeah. so I make sure I balance that out with pure speed timing of accelerations. Mm-hmm. Even though I like doing that all year, I, 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 I implement, implement it more often when I am working heavy resistance. And that, and that may not necessarily be on the same day, but it is in the same week. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. And the, you just touched on that's something that you've learned over time. There's value in implementing time thirties whilst going along with, especially in your heavy resisted cycles. That seems to be something you've learned as you've gone. Anything else as you've implemented and played around with traditional methods? And as I said, you used to be someone who happily used sled training as your kind of yeah. primary modality for implementing resisted training. Is there any other pitfalls or perhaps um, kind of nuances that you've discovered that you feel are just were ver- valuable learning experiences while playing around with these methods? Definitely. Oh, man, I could, man, you got six hours. Holy smokes, man. I could go Let's do it. all day on this. Let's but, do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, one thing, uh, I'll give you a couple here. I'll probably forget a few, but uh, one thing is I think you always got to be willing to, uh, and this kind of goes back to something I said earlier is you're always thinking about progression and I think it can be very comfortable to get stuck at 20 meters and 30 meters. Although I think 30 meters is such a beautiful training distance, like just the, the adaptations you get from a 30 meter acceleration sprint, I think is just such a go-to training distance, very low injury risk, such high power and speed development. So that is a workhorse distance for me. Um, but I think you really, it's easy to get stuck there. And so I, I think one thing, one really, one thing I've found, especially in terms of speed training is the difficulty of transitioning from acceleration into upright. Cause it's, it is quite different. Like in a sense with acceleration, if you say, if you get an athlete to, Hey, I need you to push harder. And then, you know, maybe they don't get it. And then you, you can use the tape lines, you can use resisted sprints and eventually they get it. I mean, it's pretty, it's not a very complex concept, just freaking push. Right. And so it's, it's very simple. Uh, but the nuances involved there is uh, pushing 
through the post or in line with your spine and gradually rising into upright. Now where it becomes tricky in that transition into upright is you are still pushing as hard as you can within your spine. But the, a lot of time within in line with your spine, but a lot of time athletes want to continue pushing the ground away when they get upright. And that is such, that's the most common error I see. I feel like that's a more common error than the frequency thing is that transition uh, because the, the sprint evolves, it grows over time, it grows over distance and, it, and the nature evolves too. And so in acceleration, you're going from pushing as hard as you can, longer contacts, but then you're gradually coming upright. So you get that strong sense of building through acceleration when done well, and that's good and healthy and how it's inappropriate. Like you're generally coming up, what, six, seven degrees every step mm -hmm. roughly um, until you get upright. But there has to be a lot of discipline when you are upright because you're not building. Your, your posture is no longer building anymore. And so a lot of time you'll see an athlete get upright, but then they all of a sudden they start going backwards because mm -hmm. they want to feel that, that the posture continue to, to move and evolve. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's But no, it has to stay there. And so you're, you're going from this sense of building and pushing into kind of, for lack of a better term, locking into upright and having a very consistent stride pattern where every step should feel almost the same. Yeah. Even though it's not, obviously, but phenomenologically or experientially, it should feel the same. Yeah. And so I do think like in terms of progression, it's critical to keep working from 20 to 30 up to 40, up to 50 up to 70, up to 90. I feel like that was one thing I talked with Chidi a lot about in the past is that kind of 70 to 90 zone often gets like completely neglected. People, they do 20, or coaches do a lot of 20s and 30s. They do resisted sprints. A lot of coaches do fly 10s, 20s and 30s, all great stuff. We do the speed endurance 150s, right? Mm -hmm. What about 70 to 90, man? Yeah. That's like... Your sprint float yeah. sprint and your various yeah. other... Yeah, yeah. And so, so I think like it's important to keep pushing forward, even and even if you don't like, I don't really have. Uh, I know you had uh, when you sent me the notes. You asked about like prereqs for like progressing training, and I yeah. my only real prereq is ex have they been exposed to a certain training modality enough? And if I feel like oh they they become proficient enough at it, I'm going to push forward because I think you got to push you got to keep pushing training forward and not get complacent. And so I think like keeping an eye on pushing in the 40 meters in the 50 in the 70, like to me, 70 is such a beautiful training zone. I absolutely love 70 meter sprints. I think it's just cause it's, it's not too far where they can only do like two or three. Like you could probably get up to, up to like four or five quality, high quality reps with full, full rest in between. And you're going through the whole thing. You're going through acceleration into upright and just kind of getting out of max V into a little bit of that, you know, quote unquote, speed coordination, speed endurance phase, maybe mm -hmm. just for five meters or something like yeah. that. So, uh, so I think that's really key. So if anything, I think in terms of learning, I think it's always, always trying to keep that eye towards progression and not get too comfortable into any single zone of sprinting. Because uh, you always want to keep adapting, keep pushing, even if they're not fully ready for it. So I'd say that's a big thing um, that I'm always kind of keeping an eye on and and trying to push. Now, I have some facility restraints that prevent me from that and I, if the weather's really bad. But if 
but I am always thinking of that. Um, and so I think that's a, a, that's a really key element. And then uh, just like some other, like, I guess I'd say like case studies or examples are, you know, once again, like I said, I don't really have one way of doing things. I mean, yeah, I was just talking to a, a coach a, a few days ago about like uh, approach development and, and things like that. And, you know, sometimes like there's one, one of our, or our, our best triple jumper on the team right now, uh, gift, he, his sophomore year, he, I mean, this guy, like I was giving him just speed training with everyone else. And I think it was a couple of weeks in the, uh, in the training, we did a fly 10 and he ran a 95. And so it's like September, he's running a 95. I mean, I was like, Holy cow, this is pretty impressive. Right. But I noticed like when we work on triple jump training, I mean, his technique was, it was horrendous. I mean, he was all over the place. And so his speed power qualities were going way up, but his technique was going way, way, way down. And so, you know, I decided like, this just isn't worth it. Like I could keep making him faster. I could turn him into a 92, 91 guy, whatever, but he's just not gonna be able to triple jump. So what's the point of it? Once again, it doesn't, if it doesn't transfer, who cares? Right. It doesn't matter. And so I actually just ceased giving him speed training the rest of the year. Uh, not even I, any, not, not one time the rest of the year did he do uh, a single, at least in practice, a single max effort sprint. He did a lot of sub-maximal sprinting, and he primarily just did a lot of approach work. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we moved his approach up to 12 steps. And, and that worked beautifully. Like he, maybe he actually got a little slower, but that gave him way more control down the runway. Yeah. And then he set a personal best by over two feet that year. Yeah. And so, and so that's, that was just something you had to do with the athlete you had at hand there. That was, that, just, was, that was on the fly and looking at the situation, taking into account everything that was happening, watching his speed training, watching his technical development. And just, so it's, it's not, you know, and that's my point is like, I literally made him, I, I had to actively make him slower to make him improve. And so that's a, you know, that's a one-off. That's not a very common situation. That's the only time I've ever done that. But once again, it's all about like analyzing situations and understanding that, uh, especially in the world of jumps, which, you know, you're a, a long jumper. And so, you, you know, a lot of this resonates with you. Um, there's a sense in which certain parameters, traditional speed training metrics or training modalities could become poison for some athletes, if, uh, especially in terms, of, uh, in terms of jump training as well. So, yeah. so I think it just has to do with always, you know, you always have a, a general progression with all activities, right? And I have that. I have like charts that I, uh, for all the speed training and different avenues of speed training, I mean, I, I've, I've studied, I try to study as much as I can of different methodologies um, just so I can incorporate all these different potential programs when I feel like I need to. But at the end of the day, you have to adapt to the circumstances that are given to you and, and, and do what's appropriate for the athlete. And so like, so that's a, that's a really extreme example, but I think it kind of goes back to everything we said, where it's not about necessarily having a, a clear one single program, but you always have to be very adaptable and malleable in your thinking and your programming. And, and sometimes you have to throw it out each day 
and, and then get back to it the next day. And sometimes you have to take a totally different detour the whole year. And so, uh, so those are, you know, that's one thing that's always like evolving in my thinking and my, in my programming and my strategizing is just learning to have uh, better observation skills and, and also like faster, more critical thinking on a daily basis. So you can make those, make those decisions on the fly. Uh, and I don't always get it right. I'm only giving you the good examples because, you know, I don't want to give you the bad ones here, you know? <laughs> no, you wouldn't want to do that. God forbid. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for as many good thoughts as I've had, I probably had three times more bad thoughts. So, uh, but the point is it's, you're always like trying. Yeah. And, and I love the, I, I'm always like, when I go to practice, I'm always trying to be completely immersed like very just just forget everything else and have just be completely immersed in each practice constantly observing uh crunching the data and trying to tease out uh adaptations rather from a uh whether they're quantifiable or if it's more technical so or qualitative right. if you will so yeah um so yeah it's just it's more that just uh it always goes back to like you have a training philosophy or maybe like five or six training philosophies, which is kind of how I function. Uh, and then you're always adjusting it all the time based on the individual. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of utility in what you're saying for the main reason being that if you were to give a lot of absolutes here, sure, that would be, you know, very appealing information on one hand, but it wouldn't really lend itself helpful to the roadblocks that, you know, coaches do come into contact with yeah. and the circumstances that you're presented in on a daily basis. And as I said, it's just, you know, the fundamentals well enough, you apply them day in, day out, you see different patterns and you see their different adaptions. And ultimately these all build the bank towards mm. you making better, clearer decisions. So there's, there's a lot of utility in failing and failing yeah. good is, you know, responding accordingly. Right. And, Love. um, I think, Ultimately, this podcast and uh, this episode will have a great amount of uh, insight to provide to you know coaches around the world, and I hope that they can clearly see that you've done uh, a lot of our experimentation over the years, especially as you've paid your dues to Loyola. And uh, I suppose I'll just kind of cap things off by asking or uh, asking yourself, how can the listeners keep up to date as you? keep embarking on your, your coaching journey. You're an avid writer as you've expressed, yeah. but, um, what's the best platform to catch you on? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm still, uh, I'm working on a third, uh, simply faster article right now. Um, and so that'll actually be on long jump approach development. And then I'll have a fourth one, um, on takeoff development. So, um, so I am, uh, continuing to write and work. That was, that sort of became my pandemic passion project. Uh, and it kind of like served, uh, served as something to invest my, invest sure. myself into in lieu of not having a season. So, uh, so really it became, it was a really fun project to embark on. It's fun to have like two of the articles out there. I actually wrote the whole thing as about a 30 page single space training pamphlet. <laughs> so I actually have it all written, but then I, I had, to, I've been chop, I had to chop it into smaller pieces to fit simply faster. Sure. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so I'm still working on those. Um, uh, hopefully people like it. Uh, uh, hopefully the five or six people that actually read them liked it. And, uh, uh, so that, 
that's still forthcoming. And then I have ideas on a fifth article that I talk to the Simply Faster people about incorporating philosophy. Because I, I do, uh, I, you know, I went to grad school in philosophy. And I think there, there's a lot of what I learned in that that I apply in my coaching and sort mm-hmm. of bridging bridging the gap of philosophy and, and coaching experience. But that's sort of like a long-term project down the road. Uh, but yeah, I'm active on Twitter. Um, it's at Bob Thurnhofer. Uh, so you can find me there. I'm trying to get a little bit more active and uh, actually expressing my thoughts on there. A lot of time I'm just a retweeter, but maybe I, maybe I need to be a little bit more active and putting my thoughts out there and videos out there, which I think, which I do plan on doing. And you can find me on uh, Instagram as well, uh, Bob Thurnhofer seven on there. And those, so I'm on Facebook, but not too active on Facebook. If anyone has questions, my email is on the website. I'm, I'm, uh, I probably check my email more than I should. So uh, so you feel free to, to DM me on social media or send me an email and, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty accessible. Yep. That's great. And I think, um, although I'd love to sit here and continue the six hour conversation and we might do offline, but, um, I just want to, first of all, coach, thank you so much for contributing to this conversation, giving people your expert insight and uh, experience within using resistance training. And I, hopefully that kind of opens people's um, minds to essentially working alongside those bandwidths and continuums and understanding the fundamental goals of what we're trying to achieve here, which is obviously speed with requisite to all the um, fundamental qualities, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I just want to say to the listeners at home, for anyone who has tuned in, we really appreciate your time and that I hope wherever you are, you are safe and sound and of course, pushing the envelope. So until next time, guys, thank you very much. Take care. Take care. Thanks, Colin.